Hello and welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to get the latest COVID-19 pandemic information out to first responders as efficiently, effectively, and clearly as possible. Today is March 20, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers and I'll be your host. Since March 5, 2020, the EMS On Air podcast crew has produced 22 episodes designed to assure that the most recent information is available on a regular basis. After recording and editing that many episodes in such a short amount of time, we need to take a little break. Don't worry, we'll be back in a week or so. The good news is that when we come back, many of the EMS On Air podcast episodes will be available on AmericanCME.com, where EMS providers will be able to earn EMS continuing education credits after finishing an entire episode, completing a short survey, and passing a post-podcast quiz. Imagine driving to work, knocking out some CEs while listening to your new favorite EMS podcast. Not a bad deal. More to follow on that in the very near future. In today's episode, we give everyone an update on the changes that were made to the Oakland County Med Control COVID-19 emergency protocols as of May 15, 2020. Multiple emergency protocols were deleted and a few were updated. Again, the purpose of this episode is to dial into what changed and why it changed so that EMS and associated ED personnel may better understand the application of each of the current emergency protocols that are still in effect. Prior to recording this episode, I received feedback from a number of people regarding their concerns on this topic. After speaking to a number of EMS providers of all experience levels, Sergeant Wayne Huckel at the West Bloomfield Fire Department left me a voicemail that seemed to convey the general concern that the OCMCA has received from many EMS providers regarding the current emergency protocols. Here's Sergeant Huckel. I think to summarize the question, it's the language that we're seeing a lot with the protocols where they're using words like should be avoided and I think where a lot of us are used to language like we see with ACLS protocols where if it's A do this, if it's B do that and so I think that for a lot of guys just having conversations with them we're uncomfortable with with the language where it's not so cut and dry they're leaving room for interpretation and I think that that's what's making a lot of folks uncomfortable. Hopefully that helps. Thanks. Talk to you later. Well said, Wayne. Thank you for articulating your concerns. This is a common comment that many medical control authorities around Michigan receive from their EMS providers even before COVID. Before recording this episode, I played that very voicemail for Dr. McGraw and Bonnie so that they could hear for themselves how many EMS providers in their community feel. Trust me, they get it and they're doing their best to do everything they can, along with all of the other OCMCA committees, to get the best protocols and information possible out to us, the EMS providers. In today's episode, Bonnie does a great job of explaining all of the changes, and Dr. McGraw addresses some of the nuances, as well as the common concern as expressed by Sergeant Huckel. Please keep emailing your comments, questions, concerns, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast, episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Dr. McGraw, and good morning, Bonnie. Good morning. Good morning. 
Today, we're here to talk about the most recent updates to the COVID-19 emergency protocols for EMS providers in Oakland County, Michigan. Now, all of our changes that have been made to these protocols have been reflected in the Oakland County Med Control Protocol app, as well as the website. Specifically on the website, you will find a matrix called the COVID-19 Emergency Protocol Matrix that was last updated May 15, 2020. Everything you hear today provides a quick little detail of what's in play and what isn't. This podcast is a companion to that. Bonnie, can you please tell us about the protocols that were deleted from the list of emergency protocols and why? Absolutely, Jeff. So starting with 8.45, specimen collection for suspected COVID-19 patient, we deleted that one because we created 8.49 clinical testing of patients with suspected COVID-19. So we got together and partnered with Oakland County Public Health, Dr. Faust, and they're doing the training. And the specimen collection protocol basically doesn't follow what Dr. Faust and public health is training our personnel to do. So that one, we just deleted just for that reason. And we're sticking with the clinical testing of patients with suspected COVID-19, which is 8.49. The next protocol that we deleted was 8.42, agency guidelines for EMS providers reporting exposure or illness with a suspicion of COVID-19 infection. That one is no longer necessary. And Dr. McGraw agreed that we don't need that protocol anymore in our protocols. And then the last one that we deleted was 8.41, clinical treatment for patients with suspected COVID-19. What we decided to do with that one is take the important parts and put it into 8.37. So basically that treatment section of that protocol, especially the cardiac arrest section, was integrated into 8.37, personal protection, treatment of patients after screening positive for coronavirus, and decontamination of equipment after use. So that protocol now is everything you really need in one protocol to be able to treat your patients and to be able to identify a suspected COVID patient. We also changed the name of that protocol from the first protocol. We did update the signs and symptoms so that they were more in line with CDC signs and symptoms now. And that is also reflected in 8.39. That's the only change made, 8.39. After that, we continued through the protocol and we deleted some of the assessive patient's respiratory symptoms because now we have the screening already done in 8.39. So you know you have a potential COVID positive patient. Or you could just say it as a patient screened positive for COVID-19. If you have that, you go to this protocol or your treatment options. Oxygen administration, Dr. McGraw can speak to when you do that, when you don't do that. Yeah, Bonnie, this is a great example of when we're trying to make things a little bit more cohesive and straightforward. And I'm grateful that people are challenged but succeeding in their ability to critically think. When patients need oxygen, what we want to do is give them as much oxygen as we are required to do to improve them, knowing that in certain cases, especially those that are severely ill, we're not going to get their pulse ox to be normal. 
but we do have to make their breathing more effective and their oxygenation headed in the right direction. So we're balancing the risk of giving them more oxygenation and even potentially aerosolizing some of that around, say, a non-rebreather mask against the requirement that they do so while also mitigating the risk to the providers. And it isn't as simple as just put them on oxygen, hope for the best. You actually have to deliver enough oxygen to improve them, but no more than that. And at the same time, recognize that as you position them better or as they begin to resuscitate, maybe that higher need of oxygen can be mitigated down to something like two or four or six liters of nasal cannula oxygen under a surgical mask. Again, the notion is we give them as much as it takes to improve them and no more. It is often more desirable to have sort of black and white, if this occurs, do that. But unfortunately, this disease and its manifestations make doing so in a protocol form very challenging because there's just too much uncertainty. And we've also really never been faced with a situation where we try to write protocols and we still have to be very mindful of the risk to the providers. That's another thing. You know, we always have had risk in our practice, including mine in the emergency department. But the risk has never been quite like this. Even dealing with similar respiratory problems like tuberculosis still aren't the kind of risk like we encounter now with the frequency in which we encounter it. So our protocols are necessarily more based on the understanding you'll do what you have to do and no more, but you'll do something as opposed to results in action B. I wish it was that linear and that certain and that direct, but because of the amount of risk that that would provide to our colleagues in the pre-hospital world, we really can't write protocols that way. We have to write them in a more nuanced fashion that allow them to critically think and mitigate their own risk to the greatest extent possible. So going forward with the protocol, you'll notice some changes in the aerosol generating procedure area where you are instructed to use some aerosolizing procedures, but also only when you have full PPE on. And that includes a non-rebreather mask. And especially using non-rebreathers when you're in the patient's home or outside of the ambulance. Again, we're still trying to make sure that we do everything we can to minimize the amount of risk to the providers. And of course, being outside the back of the ambulance or at the ambulance with the doors open and the exhaust fan on is better being in the confined ambulance with the doors closed. It's all sort of a, a spectrum of risk. And as we do things that are more risky, say putting in a superglottic airway versus a non-rebreather or using a non-rebreather as opposed to six liters of oxygen underneath a surgical mask, as we look at that spectrum of risk, what we really want to do is always try to use the lowest amount of risk in our procedures as possible while still providing benefit to the patient. And it is a very tricky thing. In my whole career in EMS, I've never asked people to think like this. But in fairness, I've never asked doctors and nurses to do the same thing in their emergency department. We're, we're very much like you. We want to identify a problem and have a go-to solution that we can use as much and as frequently and as successfully every time as possible. It's just that this disease doesn't lend itself. We now have to wear full respirators, just like you guys do. We have to wear gloves and try to put in a computer by taking off our gloves, but not containing the computer. There's so many things that have all changed for many of us that we've all had to kind of struggle to do this in a rather rapid way. So as much as it's unsatisfying for me to write protocols that have this built-in ambiguity or uncertainty, I can't think of another way to do it. Because if I were to go purely on my instincts and do everything to only protect the medic or the provider in the pre-hospital world, of course, there would be almost no provision of care. 
And the other extreme is, is completely unacceptable too. Do everything the way we used to. Don't change anything. And I find that to be an utterly unacceptable amount of risk to our providers. So we've actually had to build in sort of guardrails against either of those two extremes. And like in a mass casualty event, you do the most good for the most people you can, even if it's different than the way you practiced before. This whole pandemic has kind of been like an MCI for our pre-hospital and emergency department. And unfortunately, that indicates that we had to change and we had to do things differently than we've done before, recognizing that there are going to be people that we don't treat the same way we used to and probably don't impact as greatly as we'd like. But we had to do that knowing that we also wanted to preserve the safety and health of our pre-hospital providers. I had to go from intubating about a third of all my intubations with the glidoscope to 100% with the glidoscope. You know, in the old day, direct laryngoscopy, especially in certain anatomic types of patients, was easier on the patient and frankly easier on me. But we had to completely abandon that practice because of the risk attendant with using direct laryngoscopy and looking down the trachea for these patients. It's a long way of answering it, Bonnie, but I guess what I want to first of all thank our providers for being so adaptive and thinking critically for their safety and for the betterment of the patient, but also to say that as we learn more, some of this will become maybe a little less uncertain. We just haven't learned enough yet to make that happen. And then the last part of the protocol speaks to the cardiac arrest section that used to be in protocol 8.41, the clinical treatment. And that didn't change. It just was moved over to this protocol. We tried to make it blend in and flow pretty well in that protocol. Uh, and again, as a reminder, we did not take the state protocol. We made up our own protocol for cardiac arrest. You will work the patient the full 30 minutes. So that just needs to be re-emphasized to everybody. Well, Bonnie, there isn't any particular integer that I'm always comfortable with. I think what you do is, in, especially in a witness arrest, I think most of the time you can safely argue that 30 minutes makes sense. I don't want any resuscitation for a patient with lividity and rigor, obviously. I think the 30 minutes is really when you have witnessed arrest or, you know, bystander AD and CPR, all the things that we think of as our typical cardiac arrest in Oakland County. But it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with our old protocol. What I don't like to say is no matter what, we're going to put a 10-minute limit on everybody. I just, I don't know that that's reasonable either. I'm more comfortable saying that if they don't show any improvement or ROSC, you've had a witness to rest that you've been on the scene for 30 minutes, their chances of a meaningful recovery are statistically zero. That's why I'm more comfortable with 30 minutes than 10 minutes. But again, I, I don't want anybody even doing CPR in some of these calls we get. That goes back to our dead on scene protocol too. Remember, you could always have your partner call at med control and get a pronouncement prior to the 30 minutes. Unfortunately, the audio got cut off during the recording at the very end. What Bonnie was trying to say was that no matter how many minutes you work a patient, you can always call for online medical control, get a doctor on the line, describe the situation, and get help. If the situation appears to be futile, even after just a few minutes, why not get a doc on the line and clearly describe the circumstances and the status of the patient so that they can help you either terminate efforts or decide on a treatment plan moving forward? Remember, when in doubt, call for online medical direction. It's the easy button, and the people at your base hospital are happy to help you. Seriously, they want to help, and they are your safety net. 
Thank you to Dr. McGraw and Bonnie for your time today. And thank you for listening. Please continue to email your questions, comments, concerns, feedback, and more to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, EMS on Air, and uh, leave a rating and review on all the podcast platforms that you follow us on. Thank you for listening to the EMS on Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.